0: Have you ever wondered what it's like to hike the Inca Trail? Or having a a once-in-a-lifetime experience of visiting the Great Wall of China? Do you dream of sleeping under the stars in the Sahara Desert? Well, you're not alone.
1: (music) Hello and welcome to TripCast360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. This is Michael Gordon Bennett coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am joined by the Barbados Flash via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, our guest is living a location-independent lifestyle that, as it turns out, is also the perfect antidote to COVID-19. He probably didn't plan it that way when he launched all of his businesses, but travel has always been a big part of his life. And I'm actually looking forward to, I mean, his journey is just really special. And I'm going to let him tell us so I don't want to ruin it for the audience. But uh, I, I mean, th- this guy has pretty much done it all. 50 countries, uh, uh, living the good life, man.
0: Yeah, Michael. I mean, and I've i have read his bio, man. I'm jealous already. I, I just can't wait for him to share some of those fantastic experiences with our audience. Uh,
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going to force him to invite you and I over. Uh, He doesn't know this yet. He can laugh now if he wants on cue. Um, (laughs) I only have one question for him later. Can you cook? Anyway, um (laughs) before we jump into the uh, show, um, I just want to make a few announcements. You can catch our podcast at TripCast360.com or at Wherever you get your podcast, please share, subscribe, and like us with your friends and family. And if you are on, uh, listen to us on one of those platforms like Apple or something like that, that has a rating system, I'm going to tell you right now just give us a five star rating and get it over with, man. Don't waste your time. We really enjoy bringing these to you and having a lot of fun introducing you to uh, guests in the travel and tourism space who you probably didn't even know existed, many of you. So uh, uh, right. please follow us. Without further ado, Let's get into our guest. When he's not traveling, he bootstraps six- and seven-figure location-independent businesses. Most of this work was done from his home while wearing Superman pajamas. I got to see that. One of those businesses, Living Lingua, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, is an accredited and award-winning online language school. Ray and his businesses have been featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and the Boston Globe, to name a few. He has traveled to over 50 countries and spent 75% of his life as an expat. Ray's an international speaker, and when he's not busy being a father, he's a semi-professional sword fighter. Wow, I'm, I'm scared of you already, man. We are so excited to have Leigh Blakeney on our podcast. Ray,
0: welcome to TripCast360, my friend. Welcome.
2: Michael, Dave,
0: thanks for having me. Yes, welcome, welcome. I'll tell you what, you know, we should just pop right in on a personal level. And you can tell us, you know, a little about what you do. You said that your life was profoundly influenced by travel. So where are you now? Where are you now, my friend? Okay, right now I'm in Mexico because I married a Mexican woman. And this is kind of
2: where I've used as a home base for about 10 (laughs) years now. But um, being half Filipino, everybody confuses me for Mexican. But I assure you, once I speak for a few minutes, native Spanish speakers are like, yeah, where's this guy from? (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, I still make a lot of mistakes when I speak Spanish.
1: What? What? what, what, it, what remember when uh, Tim Kaine was Hillary Clinton's running mate and George Lopez came on and, and gave him, I forgot what he said, but uh, <laughs> he, he said Kim Kaine spoke Spanish like he was in a in a shoebox or something. It was some <laughs> crash joke. His was accent
2: awful. was awful. I mean, even I'm, I'm not a native Spanish speaker and even I cringed. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You quit. Uh, you you did something really bold. I was reading upon you. You quit your. You said at the time your almost six figure job as a software engineer, and you joined the Peace Corps. Um, they sent you to Mexico. From what I understand, uh, there were some benefits of living in Mexico in areas where the cost of living was a little bit easier for you. How has that? How has that shaped you? your life and in in terms of where you are, your perspective now?
2: Yeah, it's actually a great question. And it's something I kind of continually enjoy every single day of living in Mexico because most of my businesses are registered in the United States, right? So in a way, I'm living that dream. I'm making U.S. dollars and I'm spending Mexican pesos. Now, you know, we're not rich. I drive a Hyundai. I tell everybody, I'm like, you know, I don't have a fancy car outside or anything, but I have a cook. I have a cleaner. I have a gardener. I have a night nurse and a day nurse to take care of my son. In the United States, that's like Rockefeller level stuff, right? But the fact that you live in, in Mexico, is just like middle upper class. So the beauty of working online and you know, being location independent means make U.S. dollars, live anywhere in the world you want. Live in Mexico, live in Bali, and you can kind of get all these things that in the U.S. you could never dream of for
0: a fraction of the cost. Michael, I hope Ray's not like Warren Buffett. He's got a He's got a fortune, but he drives a really cheap vehicle. I do eat oatmeal every single morning still, like Warren Buffett does. So in my defense, that's the only thing. That's the only thing.
1: Well, 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 Dave will let you borrow his private jet when when you need to go somewhere.
2: Nice, nice. Good. Because, you know, that whole economy thing, I might be past that, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Before we get uh, too far into the weeds and to the rest of the show, tell everybody where approximately in Mexico you are. You're not sitting on the beach in Puerto Vallarta or in Cancun. Tell us, tell us where you are and, and tell us what the weather is like here in November.
2: Yeah, so I'm in a city called Querétaro, Mexico. Most people have never heard of it. I hadn't heard of it until I moved to Mexico either. We're about three hours north of Mexico City. And it's actually the most touristy, you know, for Mexicans, it's the most visited city in Mexico that's not on the beach. Because it, I like to say it's like Philadelphia. The Constitution was written here. The <laughs> hymn was, you know, the national anthem was sung here the first time. It was the capital of Mexico for a while, but most people outside of Mexico have never heard of it. Downtown, you know, we bought, bought an old historic home that's four hundred fifty years old, and we renovated it so it looks like the old Spanish downtown, kind of with the colonial buildings that we live in. But the weather is eighty-five degrees year-round and zero percent humidity. So if anybody's kind of looking for that kind of thing, that's it. We're in the mountains though, so we're you know. Be a little aware of the altitude when you get here, because the first few days, it always hits me as well, because it doesn't feel like we're there. But, you know, you go up a flight of stairs and you're winded.
1: Hey. <laughs> oh, well, I, I've been there. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I when I first moved to Colorado Springs, I remember being six thousand it's six thousand and thirty five feet above sea level, according to the signs as you enter the city. But where we lived was at the Air Force Academy, which is another thousand feet higher up. Okay. And I mean, you can see from Colorado Springs, damn near to Kansas, which is 150 miles away. We were so high up and there's no mountains heading east. And I remember the first day we got there, I'm like, <gasps> <laughs> you know, I, wow. I, I couldn't breathe. And I remember my mom went to bake a cake and, and people who don't live in high altitude don't know this. You go bake a cake and it's got high altitude cooking instructions on it. Really? Yeah. And my mom put that cake in the oven and it wouldn't rise. That thing was flat, baby. I mean, it would not rise. And she thought she did something wrong. She's out here checking her recipe and stuff like that. And finally, my dad just looked at her. Did you read the, the uh, high altitude instructions? That was the end of it. <laughs> so we it, learned. It
2: happened to me as well. I never lived at altitude before moving to Mexico. And again, I'm half Filipino. Filipinos, we eat our rice, right? So, yeah. you know, I went in there. And I'm like, I, I know how to make rice. You know, I got exact measurements for mixing the water and everything. Tried making rice the first time in here in Mexico. And it didn't come out. I mean, something as simple as simple boiled white rice did not come out for like the first two weeks. It took me a while to realize it was the whole boiling temperature of water thing. And I had to go on Google. I'm like, how do I make rice? I was so embarrassed. I mean, in the Philippines, I'd be ostracized if I had to (laughs) tell somebody that. I was like, I had to look up how to make rice. We're all
1: born knowing how to do that, right? So it was my experience as well. No, I I got you. Hey, tell us something. You have, Dave mentioned earlier that you quit a really nice fat salary job to go to the Peace Corps. But now you've got a couple of really nice businesses that are, you know, doing quite well for themselves. You obviously have this entrepreneurial spirit about you. Where did that entrepreneurial impetus come from?
2: Here's the odd thing. When I was a kid, everybody said I was going to be an entrepreneur, except I didn't want to be. I told them I want to be a computer programmer. So it was like everybody else saw that I had this entrepreneurial spirit except for me. I liked computers. So I'm like, let me go and learn computer programming. This is, you know, I date myself. This is back in like in the 90s, right? When floppy disks actually were floppy, uh, you know, <laughs> back in the day. So I'm like, I went to college. I studied. I did what everybody was supposed to do after college. What do you have to call? you get a job and you stay there for 40 years, right? It took about four or five years to realize that, yeah, this is not what I want to do the rest of my life, right? I mean, you know, I was sitting in a cube every day, yeah. helping a Fortune 50 company sell more chemical-related products. Now, it was a good company. They treated me well. But you know, if I did my job well, they sold a bunch of chemicals. And that really wasn't something that I wanted to look back on my life in 40 years. I'm like, yeah, I sold, I sold a whole bunch of chemicals. So I decided, I'm like, I got to make a big change in my life. I want to go overseas. But there was this catch-22 when you look for overseas jobs, right? In order to get an overseas job, you need overseas experience. But you can't get overseas experience without getting the overseas job. So, I was, it, you know, it took me about a year to figure out, like, how do I get that job overseas when nobody will even give me a chance? Then I remember the Peace Corps. My dad was in the Peace Corps in the Philippines. That's how we met mm. my mom. I'm like, why don't I just go and do that? I know they don't pay me very much, but they're going to send me overseas. I'll have the experience. Then when I get back, I can apply for more overseas jobs that actually pay me better, and I can start working overseas. So that was kind of the plan when I joined the Peace Corps. It, it kind of took a sideways turn when I met my wife and I became an entrepreneur. But otherwise, you know, I would have been on that path for the rest of my life.
1: I, I got my international experience by spend, spending seven and a half years in the United States Air Force. You joined the Peace Corps. Okay. There's something, you know, a little well, off exactly. here. Exactly.
2: <laughs> my, my uncle did the Air Force route as well. So, you know, he, yeah. that, that, that's his route. But yeah, I'm like two years in the Peace Corps, a little bit easier.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I'm an Air Force brat too. My dad was a career Air Force. So it just, I guess it was part of who I am. I, I do have a, um, uh, your background is interesting growing up in Rhodesia, spending most of your childhood in Turkey, kind of, you know, obviously we're a travel podcast. So we'd like to kind of highlight some of the places you've been. Talk to us. I know you probably don't remember a lot about Rhodesia since you were a little toddler back I'll then, clarify, but you may dad, have a few my stories. My dad who
2: grew up in Rhodesia, it wasn't actually Oh, it was your is. dad. Okay. Yeah. So he okay. lived there for 15 years. So he's got some interest. My grandfather was the first minister of the first all-black church in Harare back then. We found out later, he passed away last year and two years before he passed away, he told us he was actually working for the CIA while he was there. Um, none of us nope. knew this for like most of the time that he was there. But he, he had these amazing stories while he was working there. My dad obviously got exposed to a lot of racism while he was there because even the people, he went to the, the local, I'm going to call it white kid school, right? It was the British school mm-hmm. there. But people didn't want to talk to him because his dad worked with the, the people of Africa, you know, the Africans. So people wouldn't even talk to my dad, even though he's blonde, blue eyed, because it's like, no, 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 you're friends with the black people. We don't want to associate with you. So that was a lot of what my father went through when he was growing up um, over there in Rhodesia. So he's got some amazing stories. My grandfather actually has like National Geographic level photos of because he would go out and interact with the tribes back in the days where, you know, it was still black and white film. Roles, all mm-hmm. of that so if you guys look at those like old photos from africa he's got them but he's the guy sitting next to the you know he's the one who's actually in the photos oh, wow. there he's got really cool stories of growing up in rhodesia um and right now when he passed away he still has a lot of the stuff and most of it was donated to a museum in boston so a lot of the stuff oh, that god. he has from rhodesia is is in a museum right now in downtown boston
1: my god man that's that's awesome um Pivoting from Rhodesia, you. I, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. You did say, in, in when we read your your background, you grew up in Turkey. At least I did. Part of your childhood. Bad. What was the Turkish experience like? And I'm I'm going to caveat this with a couple of uh, 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 questions. The girl Carrie De Phillips, who was on our show two episodes ago, mm-hmm. she's like you. Her location independence, but she raved when she went to Turkey. She spent three months there. She absolutely loved it. So. You grew up there. Give us your perspective on Turkey and what you you learned from it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, growing up there, I moved there when I was about 11 months old. So, you know, I have no memory of being a kid anywhere but Turkey. I was born in the Philippines, I think eight months or so old is when my parents flew back to the United States so I could meet my grandparents, do some paperwork, and then they started their job in Turkey. Growing up there was interesting. I was, I'm Asian American. But I spoke Turkish like a Turk. And back then in 1980s, like 1981, there was like no other person like me in Istanbul. I mean, you know, they would meet me and they would just kind of look at you like, how does this Filipino kid speak Turkish like a native Turkish speaker? Um, Mm -hmm. But it opened up a lot of doors for us as well, right? I mean, I would walk down the street and people would actually stare at my mom, Filipino, my dad, you know, American while we were walking down the street. But it was not in a bad way. It was just like, wow, we've never seen people like that before. And growing up there, I was what they called a third culture child, right? So my mom is from the Philippines. My dad's from the US, but grew up in Africa. And I'm growing up in Turkey, right? So everybody asks, when people ask, where are you from? It's always this loaded question for me. I'm like, what do you mean? What does it say on my passport? Where was I born? Where did I grow up? Where do I live? You know, all of these things are totally different answers for me. So growing up in Turkey actually shaped me in that way where I alluded to it earlier. I feel more comfortable in places where I'm not supposed to fit in. In Turkey, it was cool, right? I speak the language, but nobody said, hey, he's a Turk, right? So I'm kind of this outsider who I get to experience all the Turkish experience without kind of the bad sides of it. you know. Because I'm like, he's not really Turkish, so let's not put him into the drama, right? He's he's just kind of – he's that foreign novelty friend we have here who's kind of hanging out with us. I find the same thing when I'm in Mexico now, right? I speak Spanish now. But nobody expects me to understand their jokes. And I, you know, a lot of those kind of things that are in there, I'm like, yeah, he speaks it, he's Ray, right. he's cool, but I don't get caught up in a lot of the drama. And I found that that's where I feel comfortable in life. So growing up in Turkey, that's what it taught me, right? The only place I ever felt out of place, I'll be honest, was the United States. I felt very, very out of place when I moved back to the US. That's United.
0: interesting. Yeah. But anywhere else in the world, I feel very comfortable. Your, your ability to fit in so seamlessly. You mentioned earlier about the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I think, was it your dad or your grandpa that they thought was a a CIA spy? Well, my grandfather actually was a CIA spy. They thought I was a CIA (laughs) spy. It was actually, there was
2: a newspaper article without mentioning my name, but they sent three of us to the southern center of this southern Mexico to work at the science center. And there was a an article in the national newspaper saying CIA spies have infiltrated a science center in Southern Mexico. They didn't have our photos or our names or anything, but it was definitely about us because I mean, we literally arrived. We were the only Americans there. So there was, a, there was nobody else it could have been. It was ironic because they said we were there to steal information, but it was part of the Mexican equivalent of the National Science Foundation. So everything that they do is yeah. public domain anyway. I mean, you know, you can't steal anything by law. They just publish it all to the internet. So it was just this whole political infighting thing um, while we were there.
0: Yeah, but what did, did that have any impact or what impact did that have in, in your ability to function there, being labeled as a CIA spy or suspected CIA spy?
2: Yeah, so it was an interesting experience. Again, I look Mexican just because of my background. Um, this, I was in the IT department. I was a software engineer. The people in the IT department, they were the ones who actually, the way the Peace Corps works is you're invited in, right? Peace Corps doesn't send you and say, hey, we're going to send you somebody. These science centers actually have to say, we want somebody to help us with this. So I was invited, this department needed somebody to help, you know, a programmer. So they invited me in. They were really, really nice and accepting. And there was absolutely no problems with that. Um, most of the people that were against us were in these other departments. And we found out later it was actually political infighting. One of the people who wanted us out was actually wanted to be the next director of the science center. So he was trying to make the current director look bad by saying, look, he invited CIA spies. He called his friend who was a reporter. And that's how the whole story kind of blew up. It was this kind of political two factions in the science center that were there. Generally, I was isolated in my IT department, except for one incident where I was sitting there because we all kind of shared a common room. I was sitting there programming. And one of the people from the other kind of division in the science center walked into the office and started complaining to my boss sitting right next to me about how there was a CIA spy in this department and how they should be careful. But since I looked Mexican, they didn't know I was the CIA spy. So I'm literally just sitting there about two feet away as he's talking about how they should kick the CIA spies out. My boss says, let me introduce you to the spy. He's sitting right over here. (laughs) He looks at me and just turns around, walks out of the room. and He doesn't say anything else. And he never walked into that office again in the two years that I was serving there. So that was my only real incident with that.
1: Hey, 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 Dave, doesn't he look like he has that undercover face? I'm telling
0: you. I'm <laughs> I'll shave off the beard. You know I'm <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'm telling you. Uh, I find your life to be extremely interesting. Huh? Um, you travel two to three months every year. Uh, you've, had, you've had some really life-challenging experiences. For most people, this travel style can be very grueling. How do you balance your work? being so busy and your, and, your family, and your family life? So here's something I say pretty frequently when people ask me that question.
2: When, you know, let's say last big trip we did, we spent two months in Japan. And if you asked me, was that a work trip or a business trip? I would answer yes, right? Because it depends on your point of view. I would wake up in the morning. I would answer emails for two or three hours, maybe get some work done. Then we would go out and take a tour of Tokyo. I really wanted to do the go-kart tour in the Mario Brothers outfits. My wife, I couldn't quite convince her to dress up as Princess (laughs) Toadstool. But, you know, let's just say we do that. It's Halloween, man. I know. Even though it wasn't, I'm like, maybe I could convince her, right? Um, But we went and did that. So, and then I'd come back after we had, you know, a great ramen dinner. We'd come back and I might work another two or three hours. So I worked six hours that day. We were out for six or seven hours that day. And then the question is, was that a work day or was that a vacation day? So that's why I say the answer is yes. It was both of those things. That's kind of how we've mixed our work-life balance. Work is part of our life, and life is part of our work. So we haven't tried to do what – I think where a lot of people get hung up is they try to make this line saying, here's work and here's life, and they're totally unrelated to each other. Unfortunately, Even when you're not traveling, that's never the case, right? Life, right. You have right. to work to live and you have to live. I mean, it's all tied together. You have a bad day at work. It affects your home, vice versa. So we didn't even try to separate those things. My wife and I work together, right? We run our, our biggest businesses together. So, I mean, it's not that we have our own work either. It's we work together. We live together. We travel together. We raise a child together. And it's all part of this experience. And if you take it that way, it's just life, right? It's just, hey, what did you do today? We lived. I mean, you know, we work, we played, we... Laughed, we cried. That's it.
1: One of the reasons that Dave and I wanted to have you on the show is I think a lot of people, especially Americans, uh, think that what you do is not accessible to them. In other words, either they're afraid to try living someplace else that's not named the United States or they don't. Or they are, or maybe they're in a career that doesn't lend itself to being, you know, uh, location independent. And Carrie D. I guess, a couple of weeks ago, said the same thing. And I'm, I'm going to ask you the same question: What kind of businesses lend themselves to being able to be location independent in your work life? What have you seen in, in your travels and, and speaking with others?
2: Yeah. So. Almost any business can lend itself to be location independent as long as you're willing to think, I hate the paradigm, but I'll use it outside the box. Outside right? the box. Exactly. Right. Um, for example, electrician. I, actually, I was actually talking to some guy the other day. He was an electrician, and he was, said he, you know, he was saying exactly that. He's like, look, I actually have to work. You know, I have to physically go and touch the wires and put them together and do all that. How can I, this become location independent? There's so many ways you can become location independent, even with a physical job like that. You want to teach other people how to do basic electrical stuff, make videos, do YouTube courses. Um, you can do electrical coaching, right? If you are certified in certain things in electricity, you, you, know, you help prepare people for tests to kind of get them to the next level because even electricians need different levels of certification. There's all these things that you already know how to do. Just you, th- you don't realize that you have the skill set behind you that can be taken online. That's what most people need in order to kind of get them there. There's some obvious ones, right? If you already work on the computer, you're done podcast, executive assistant programmer, if your job is on a computer, there's no reason you should be sitting in a cube every day working, right? But for those other jobs, it just takes a little bit of creativity. It doesn't take rocket science. Just that one extra step to kind of get you past what you're used to doing every day and meeting a need. Now, there are two obstacles that people say they run into when they're trying to move online. Number one is they say, oh, it must take a lot of money. Absolutely not. We launched Live Lingua for $60. That's how much it costs to get LiveLingua.com, which is our online language school, the domain from um, Bluehost. This was back in the day, it might be $70 now or $75. We're on Bluehost
1: and it's not much different.
2: (laughs) It hasn't changed, but there you go. So you know exactly what it is, right? (laughs) So $60, that's what it takes to launch it. The next level, so it's not money. It's not really, doesn't take a lot of money. The next thing is like, I need to be a programmer. No, you don't. You know, you just, there's software out there these days. You want a course, you use Teachable. You want to make a website, you use WordPress. If your technical level is enough to use Word and PowerPoint, you can pretty much launch an online website right now. That's all it takes for you to get the basic out there. Don't worry about it being perfect. One of my favorite quotes for entrepreneurship, I believe it was Jack Dorsey from Twitter who said it, but don't quote me. Don't quote me on that. It's if you are not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you waited too long to launch it. So That's just okay. get your idea out there. Try it. Get the fee- See how people like it. Don't spend you know $10,000 or hundreds of hours of your time launching a product just on the hopes that maybe one person will buy it, just launch the bare minimum. Nobody buys it. You've lost what five, 10 hours of your time. You're good to go. Right. But if you spent a thousand hours to make this perfect product and nobody buys it, you can really kind of lose motivation. And then you just fall back to your old habits. You go and get another job, which you, if you're lucky is okay. If you're unlucky, you hate, right? I mean, those that's generally most of us get stuck. Um, and then, you know, you never try and you never actually live the life you want to live. Moving overseas, I'll add another little layer to that. If you can get your online business to make you $1,000 a month, you're good. You can move to Mexico. You can, move, you can live on the beach in Bali. You can you know, go to Southeast Asia. You can live in many, many parts of the world comfortably for $1,000 a month. So don't think like an American. I need to make $50,000 a year online before I can move overseas. That's
0: not the case. Wow. You, mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier that you listened to, actually, it was our last podcast with uh, General Honoré, and he talked about the importance of resilience. Oh, yeah. like, uh, like most folks, you must have had a lot of ups and downs. I'm assuming you've had to deal with, with some stress and crises along <laughs> the way. What's, what's your process of dealing with those ups and downs and the crises that obviously will come up at some point?
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, if you want to live a, you know, your best life, an interesting life, you're going to have ups and downs. It's not like a straight line. I think there's also these memes that people share where, you know, what people think entrepreneurship is, where it has like a little line going from the bottom, straight up to the top, right? As far as income's concerned. And then what really entrepreneurship is, which is just squiggly line that goes up and down, you know, before you reach the end. I definitely find the latter to be exactly the truth. For example, LiveLingua.com, I lost it overnight. 2012, Google did an algorithm update, totally killed us. We were gone, zero traffic. I have to build the business again. Lots of stress that was involved in that. So the key for me to deal with stress has been one, exercise. I think that's scientifically proven. So I work out every morning. I do about 10 minutes of meditation. And then the second one is I always like on a high level having a plan. Not like what am I going to do every single day, every single year. This is what I'm working for at the end. And then you get up every morning and you take one step towards that goal. Um, I like to say my superpower is discipline. I mean, I can tell you what I'm doing in every hour of every day, you know, and I will get up and I will get some work and I'll take one step towards my goal. It took us seven years to build a seven-figure business. And I jokingly say, people have asked me, you know, are you going to write a book about how to build businesses? I'm like, no, because, you know, if I wrote a book on how to build a seven-figure business in seven years, nobody would buy it. Everybody wants to know how to build a seven-figure business in 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, right? Nobody yeah. wants to get up in the morning, put in the work, and then get up the next morning, put in the work, only to see the results 5, 10 years down the road. But really, I think most successful entrepreneurs, you know, not the ones you hear about on the news, but most the rest of us successful entrepreneurs, that's how we got there. We didn't it's not overnight successes. We didn't win the lottery, you know, we didn't get published on the Nasdaq and suddenly be worth 100 billion dollars. Yeah. It's
1: not how most of us work. No. Yeah. That, 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 that instant gratification society nonsense was actually ruining this that's country. It. <laughs>
2: The only people who are getting rich off of those, you know, instant gratification are the people selling the instant gratification courses on how to get rich in 30 days. I mean, that's it. That's how they got rich, by selling you a course on how to do it. Not because they actually did
1: it. They actually, okay, Dave, you can't sell
0: your book no more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, about to, I was about to say to Ray, listen, if you're looking for a really good agent that can take you to billionaire status, You've got Michael, you know, Michael, and we'll do the thing for
1: (laughs) you. Ray, Ray, I hear you some similarities to both Dave and I. I have not walked into a corporate office, I'm guessing, in 20 years to where I actually work there. I I I left the U.S. military on for a reason. I don't follow orders very well anyway. Um, and Dave and I are serial entrepreneurs, and if I had to explain to everybody how many times I failed or how many times I bumped my head or how many times I've made a wrong move or made a bad decision as an entrepreneur, I wouldn't be an entrepreneur. I'd be getting a job, and I think too many Americans are conditioned to get a job. They're looking, I,
0: for for, they're looking for straight lines, and it's not a straight line. No. Even,
2: even jobs aren't a straight line anymore. I think that's kind no. of left from our parents' generation, right? Where it used to be you'd get a job and stay with a company for 30 or 40 years. The loyalty went both ways, right? The company yes. would keep you, and you would stay with them for 30, 40 years. That's gone. Not only are people job hopping every three to four years for a higher salary on the employee side of things, companies will lay you off tomorrow if it's better for their bottom line. I mean, they're yeah. not loyal to you at all. Yes, so, so right you know, it's just as safe to be an entrepreneur. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think entrepreneurship is for everybody either. I mean, it takes kind of a certain mindset to be an entrepreneur. Um, You have to be a little more self-driven because if you're an entrepreneur, nobody tells you you have to be at work at nine and leave at five. You could sit in bed all day and, you know, binge Game of Thrones if you feel like it. Uh, And nobody (laughs) will stop you. Of course, a year down the road, you'll be out of money and living on the street. But, you know, you need to have a little bit of desire. Um, or maybe a need. Because I have some friends who become entrepreneurs because they lost their jobs. They needed to pay the rent. It wasn't because they had the fire for it. But they're like, if I don't do this, I'm out on the street. So if you have one of those two things, give it a shot. Otherwise, do it as a side hustle to start is my, my recommendation. Don't quit your job tomorrow and just become an entrepreneur, right? Yeah.
1: You, you know what they say, necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. Some, sometimes you have to. I remember going back to your story. When I first got into the entertainment industry, you know, a production only lasts three or four months and then you got to go find another job. And then it lasts three or four months. You got to find another job. I remember calling my dad on the phone trying to explain that concept to him. And it's like the smoke was just coming out of his damn ears. You know, he he, he couldn't relate to it yet. I was making 10 times as much money as he ever made in his life. Uh-huh. And, and he he never got this thing that that's just the way this particular industry works. So, you know, I, I get it. Um what gave you? I, I guess where did you get the idea to start Live Lingua and, and and kind of tell us the genesis of that, where it came from? Oh, yeah. Mexican swine flu, <laughs> obviously, right? I mean, where
2: do all great business ideas come from? Um,
1: <laughs> you you, you, you live in COVID free down there, are you? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we are. But actually, it was Mexican swine flu that caused us to launch Live Lingua,
2: the first business that we launched after the Peace Corps, my wife and I, because we didn't know any better, was. A traditional brick-and-mortar business, right? So she's a teacher. I knew we had a little bit about programming, so I made a website. We had a brick-and-mortar language school in Mexico, right? It's things where foreigners would come and live, stay with us, and we teach them Spanish. Very traditional business, rent a place, have staff, all the rest of it. We bootstrapped it. We, I got the, you know, the Peace Corps gives you about $2,000 when you leave, mainly to buy a plane ticket to go back to the United States. And I didn't use that, and I used, we used that to start our business. And we were lucky. Within six months, it was very successful. We were fully booked, you know. Very successful brick and mortar business, successful. I found that, you know, things of scale change online, right? If we had 20 or 30 students a month, that's good for a physical school like the one we had. And then Mexican swine flu hit. For those who don't remember, this was, I believe, 2008, uh, towards the end of 2008. And it was supposed to be what COVID is now, right? They closed off Mexican borders. Nobody was coming in or out because this was going to be the next global pandemic. So suddenly our full school was empty and we'd only been, you know, profitable for about eight or nine months. So we didn't have that old six months of expense runway or anything like that set up. So at that time, my wife's like, hey, why don't we email all of our old students and see if they want to take classes online with us via Skype? Right. Not only would that bring in a little income for us, but a lot of our teachers were were contractors, so they worked week for week. And unfortunately, just like good Americans, they didn't, you know, budgeting isn't a thing. So you get paid on Friday. By the next Friday, you're totally out of money. So they, you know, we needed, it was our responsibility to kind of get them work. Otherwise they couldn't pay rent. They couldn't pay their food. So we reached out via email to all of our students and said, Hey, who wants to do it? We had a much better reception rate than we thought like 15% of them said, Hey, yeah, we'll sign up I'm like, this is great. Why don't I just throw up a website and see if anybody else wants this? So we threw up a website. We weren't called LiveLingua back then. It was called like SpanishLessonsOnline.com because I knew nothing about branding and business. Um, I threw up this ugly looking website. And then two things happened. First off, swine flu ended, right? 30 days later, like it just died out. Nothing happened. Our school was fully booked again. You know, we were going. And then six months down the road, we we were making more money off of this little side hustle website that we had launched because everybody was signing up with us. Then we were making off of our brick and mortar school, which we were working 15 hours a day at. So that's how Live lingua was born. Mexican swine flu, we decided to try something new. We were one of the first people to do it. We're the, only, we're the only one of the top three language schools in the world that doesn't have millions of dollars of VC money behind it. We're like, you know, $60 started with us. My wife was the first teacher. I answered the emails. That's how we started off. But that's how it was born. Mexican swine flu.
1: Man, isn't it nice not to have to get any VC money and answer to yeah. somebody else? <laughs> That's
2: it. VC money is a boss. Most people don't think of it that way, right? They just, it's exactly it me, it's like, what it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's free money. No, it isn't. Those people are going to be, co- they, one, they want 20% growth month on month because they know that you know one out of 10 businesses are going to work. So nine out of 10 are going to fail. So they need to make their money back. So they are breathing down your neck um, yeah. every single month. Well, if you're making tons of money, they won't breathe down your neck. But if you're not, it's an additional stress, right? If your business is not doing well, having the additional stress of having all these people behind you yelling at you is not something we've ever wanted. So we've never gone the VC money or even the business
1: loan route. We bootstrapped all of our business. That, that, yeah, that, yeah. That's actually cool. You, you've actually, it, it's stress-free for you. It's yeah. it,
2: It's slower though. Because, again, it, we were talking about it earlier, it's the instant gratification. Everybody, you can build a much more successful, a million dollar business easily if somebody gave you $5 million to build it. I mean, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody can do that. You just throw money at everything and eventually it'll fix itself. Uh-huh. But in order to build a business, when you bootstrap it, you have to do it right. Because yes, you don't you have, have the to. money to waste by, you know, hiring the wrong people or paying for the wrong things, and you can build a really solid business that way. It's just not fast. It will take right. you, I'd say, five years minimum if you're starting off. You've done it a few times, yeah, you can do it in about three or four. But there's right. no, it's never a thirty day thing. No,
1: no short, no shortcuts. No
2: okay. shortcuts at all. No short. Sure.
1: How many languages do you guys teach now?
2: We teach eleven languages at LiveLingua with tutors, but we actually have 150 languages worth of free material on our website. If you go to Live Lingua Project. Um, what we do is we actually have 150 languages where we're trying to keep a lot of languages from dying out. So we actually have, you know, courses on Kiswahili from Africa. We're like the only website in the world where you can get a free course on that. We have courses about Ikpatan, which is this dialect on a random island in the Philippines that you can actually find free courses on our website um, in order to learn those languages. We don't charge a thing. And we obviously don't have tutors for them either because there's not enough demand, right? There'd be one student every five years, but we'll let you learn them for
1: free. Nice, 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 nice. Now, now you mentioned the Philippines. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Don't you guys own a chocolate business in the Philippines?
2: Yeah, I was a Willy Wonka in the Philippines for a bit, <laughs> without the purple hat. Unfortunately, <laughs> I was never able to get my wife to convince my wife to let me wear a purple hat, even though I really wanted to. That was uh, I was an angel investor for that one, and it was kind of a fun project. We were involved. I kind of took the high level management. My wife helped out a little on the HR, um, but we had an operational partner in the Philippines. It's still there. It's called Ginto Chocolates. If you go to the Philippines, if you look for any of the kind of high-end stores like SM Cultura or um, Rustin's, you can still find our chocolates being sold there. I just sold my stocks to my partner. It was making good money by Filipino standards, but not enough for U.S. standards for for the time I was putting in. So I talked to him like, look, business is running itself. You can take half of what I make, hire somebody to do kind of the operational stuff that I'm helping you with. And take the rest of the money yourself, and I'll sell it to you over three years. You can buy out the stuff. We're still friends. She still sends us a box of chocolates um, you know, nice. for, for Christmas. So it was, it was a very amicable sale.
0: Yeah. Um, if I may pivot a bit to some of your personal, personal travel experiences. Uh, I've always wanted to hike the, the Inca Trail. You, you did that. Can you share with us what that experience is like? It was amazing and probably
2: physically the toughest thing my wife and I have ever done. And we were in decent shape. I mean, you know, we go to the gym, we work out, she runs, I do martial arts. So we thought, I'm like, yeah, how hard could it be? Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't prepare you for 14,000 feet. I mean, <laughs> you know, no matter what you do, you're not ready for not, you know, you try to take a breath and you you just can't get enough oxygen in there. Um but that's also what makes it amazing. So generally, when you do the Inca trail, you have to go on these guided tours. I think they led about 100 people a day on the, on the trail. So there's, it's a four-day hike, so there's, you'll, you'll never see more than 100 people in your day, and depending on the speed you travel, you, you know, you'll, you'll only see half a dozen or so. So my wife and I did that. And I'll be honest. I mean you know for us it was hard, but you feel really bad because tourists do the glamping. I mean, you know, we're sitting there hacking up alone, carrying a small little <laughs> yes. backpack full of a bottle of water. And then our Sherpa runs by us, carrying all of our tents, all of our food, <laughs> and not even wearing any shoes. And he just goes flies by us. And he gets us at the end of camp and he sets up the tent. And we have salmon dinner, you know, waiting for us with a cook made for the, you know, salmon dinner with pasta waiting for us and a pizza uh, when we're done with the day. So it's a great experience. You kind of go, you see places that most people can't go. There are no cars to get to most of these. So, you know, Machu Picchu is where it ends. And yeah, that, there's a lot of tourists there. But there are all these smaller ruins on the Incan Trail that you can only see if you take the Incan Trail. There's absolutely no other way to get to them. No cars, no roads, no helicopters can get there because they're too high up in the mountain. So you get your opportunity to see you know, parts of Incan culture that only a handful of people will ever get a chance to see in their entire life. Um, and the most amazing part of the trail for me was it rained one day which was kind of nice because we were sweating and kind of cooled us off. But as the rain moved away, we kind of went to the higher part of the trail. And I remember looking out to the right and we were above the clouds, but the clouds were below us in the valley and it looked like a river. So I saw clouds flowing really fast through the Andes while we were there. And we were just kind of looking out at it like this cloud river flowing through the mountains as we were hiking the Inca Trail. My wife and I just stopped. Um, to admire the view, and mainly because my wife has much better cardio than me. I was actually hacking up along at the same time. I was like, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> and my wife was like, this is beautiful. I'm like, I'll look at it as soon as I can breathe again. So yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. How long uh, did it take did, did it take you guys? It takes four days to do the four hike. Four days. It's a wow. four day hike. Um, the cool part at the end is you wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning on the last day because what they do is they let you come in through the back door to Machu Picchu. So most of the tourists take the train and they kind of come in through the front door, but there's a back door, which is at the top of the mountain. And you get to sit there and you watch the sun come up because the tourists don't get in until eight o'clock. So at 5 a.m., you're allowed in because you've done the Incan Trail. The sun comes up, the mist burns away, and then you see Machu Picchu up here below you with absolutely no tourists. And then you kind of get to go down and you get to check it out. And then all the tourists um, make fun of you as you stink. Um, but that, that's just part because you haven't showered <laughs> in four days and you've been sweating. We, should, we went, we took the train. You t- everybody thinks the train back after you do Inca, the Inca Trail, right? You don't have to walk it backwards. You know, you don't do another four days right. to go back. Yeah, another four days of downhill. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you kind of go there, and we were sitting on the train with the group. It's kind of nice bonding experience. Michael, you and the military, so they have similar ones, right? Where they make everybody a hike for three days, and then you're like best friends with everybody you did the hike with, right? right. you all support each other as so you're doing it. We were all really good friends at the end of that. There were eight of us in the, in the uh, trip, and we all sit on the train together, and we're chatting, and then somebody behind us would here. something stinks in this train. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was us. <laughs> <laughs> we had no shower. We were stinking. We had <laughs> showered. You're <Spilling>. smelling yourself. <laughs> it was us. Yeah, like I knew exactly who it was that was really stinking. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so. Oh man! Uh, I understand you've been to the Sahara, and what did you get almost uh, uh, eaten by a camel named Jimmy, or mauled by a camel? What the hell was that?
2: Jimmy almost killed me. Well, what happened with Jimmy,
1: man?
0: Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, I, I, I I still remember Jimmy's face. So if I ever see him again, you know, see that camel again, I will know to avoid him. So my wife and I were doing. We spent about two months. We started in Spain, and then we ended up in Morocco. Right. So we, you know, did Spain, made our way down to the Strait of Gibraltar. We took a boat across, and we kind of. Did about a two weeks kind of going to the sub-Saharan part of Morocco, and one of those, one of the parts of that trip was we were we kind of spent two nights in a tent in the middle of the Sahara Desert. They kind of set up these camps, they kind of take care of everything. Yeah, it sounds you know it sounds like camping, but it's glamping again. Literally, we had a running toilet in our tent. I don't know how they did that, but you know we actually had a toilet in our tent when we were there. But the way it works is, so you're driving in the car. Generally, most of the tours in Morocco, you kind of do either you. You rent a private car and they take you around. So it's not, there are very few of these big tour buses that take you in there. So we were driving, and then at some point we were driving on the highway. The driver just takes a left in a random spot on the highway. And we're just, you know, driving across, it's not quite Sahara Desert yet, but it looks like a mudflats, right? It's flat, it's dry. And we just driving, we're like, where are we going? We were a little suspicious. It was like the second day on the tour. And we're like, we don't know this guy. You know, like I've traveled quite a bit, but the whole kidnapping thing seems a little more reasonable right now. Um, so we're driving for about 30 minutes. And out in the distance, we see just this group of camels in this small like mud structure, right? Or adobe structure, I guess it was. And as we pull up, we see two or three other cars with other tourists that are there. And there's this whole group of, of camels. And he's like, okay, from here on, the camels, we're going to take you guys the rest of the way. I'll be back here in two days to pick you up. So we get paired up with our, you know, with our guides. And then he gives my wife her camel. His name, I can't remember the name of that camel. And like, here's yours. His name's Jimmy. He's a great camel. He, you know, he's really tame. You know, he, he'll take you where you want to go. So I'm like, ah, oh, cool. Ride on a camel for the next hour. This sounds like an exotic expen- adventure. And there's, you know, they gave us the whole Bedouin headdress because there was a lot of wind. So, you know, you actually had to keep the sand out of your eyes. So we had the kind of Lawrence of Arabia look kind of going. As we, <laughs> we went on the camels. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> So we get up there and, you know, my wife starts, pulls out her camera, starts taking photos. This is great. And then I suddenly notice, I'm like, this camel is not quite as smooth as I thought. So, you know, he's, he's like going up and down. He's kind of bucking a little bit. So I start holding onto the handrails. He's like, no, no, don't worry. This is Jimmy. He's, he's totally calm. Middle of nowhere, he starts, the camel starts bucking up and down, trying to throw me off of his back leans forward like all the way because when you get off of camels they're supposed to go all the way down so i kind of get thrown over the front of this the seat
0: and apparently what (laughs) happened is there was a
2: patch of grass in the middle Uh of the desert and he wanted to eat it and his the guide wasn't letting him eat it so he just totally you know flipped out almost threw me out in front of him to get that patch of grass i thought that was it but he did that five more times before we actually got to our the end camp one of the times i ended up on the ground i kind of slid to the right is there, you know, there are no real syrups on these things. Right. I was on the ground and I thought Jimmy was going <laughs> to fall on top of me. I don't know how much camels weigh, but it was a bit enough. enough. <laughs> yeah. To, to kill me at that point. So, and then the, when we came back, I got Jimmy again. So he had to take me all the way back. So again, <laughs> I'm holding on for dear life to this camel. And my wife's sitting there taking photos of all these sites. You know, the right? I was like, oh, good God. You know, so Jimmy is in my horror story of riding on a camel in the Sahara. Wow. The rest of
0: the trip was great. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll tell you, Ray, This this next question, you can take as much time as you want to answer, <laughs> to answer this. Right? Oh. Right? <laughs> you you unknowingly ate raw donkey, right? Yes, with a, Chine, a, with a Chinese Communist uh, Party member. That's yeah, true. and you know what? That's interested in more more ways than one. <laughs> but,
1: Okay. What the donkey or the, or the Communist Party member? <laughs> <laughs>
0: it all goes together. It <laughs> all goes together, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. Right? What, what does donkey meat taste like? And um, is it common to eat donkey in China?
2: It is in certain parts of China. So the story there is I spent three months backpacking across China because my sister was an English teacher in a small little village of three million people in central China. Um, you know, it's not three million people doesn't even get on the map. It, it, you know, it, you would not even find where she was teaching on the map. So, you know, I did some of the touristy things, but we went out and visited her. Where she was, she was about six hours south of a city called Xi'an, which is where you see the terracotta soldiers. So I, we visited the terracotta soldiers. Then we went to her university in her town. And so she just wanted to show me, hey, this is where I'm teaching. So we spent two or three days there. Apparently, some of the teachers got wind that I was visiting, and they somehow told the mayor of the town that I was visiting too. And of course, every government official in China is... Communist part is a communist party member, right? And wow, an American is visiting our little town. Let's invite him out to dinner. So I show up, and my <laughs> sister's like, "Yeah, you got invited out to dinner by the mayor, and you can't say no." <laughs> I mean, you know, you're not. This is not an optional invite. Now, was you know, I was 24 at the time, and I was backpacking. I had no fancy clothes, so she had to take me into town to get, you know, at least a, a button down shirt for me to use for this event. So we show up there. I sit down. They don't speak a lick of English. I don't, you know, other than saying "give me iga cha," like one tea, please. I didn't know any Chinese whatsoever. Um, So we sit down. It was one of the kind of round tables, the typical kind of plates in the middle that was spinning around. And the night starts off with apparently there's a tradition. Maybe it's in all of China, or maybe just in this region where they they have a drink called baiju, which is kind of like sake, I think. Um, And it's about a third of a U.S. shot, so a third of an ounce. But you're supposed to drink one with every new person you meet. There were 15 people around Ooh. this table,
1: So every <laughs> single one of them
2: came up to me in the span of about 20 minutes. And I'm, I'm like, God, oh, it's not so bad. These are mini shots. Yeah, you, know, you do the math. It's like six, six or seven shots in 15 minutes. So they kind of come out. By then, everybody's drunk. You know, I'm, a, I'm six foot tall. They're all like five foot tall. You know, they might be used to you, but we were all drunk at that point. <laughs> so we're all sitting and laughing and all the rest of it. They'd start bringing out all this food. And there was this really fancy looking dish where they cut them into perfect
0: rectangles
2: of raw meat. And I was like, huh. <laughs> some kind of salami or something like that. And you dip it into this vinegar at the side and I was eating it. <laughs> like, this isn't bad. And I turned to my sister I'm like, what is this? Oh, you're eating the raw donkey? Nobody eats that. <laughs> I'm like, oh. I'm, 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 it's totally fine to me. <laughs> so I had, to, I had like six on my plate and I had to eat all six pieces of raw donkey in front of the government officials. And then they all took a photo of all of us for the local paper. So I have a picture of me drunk full-on raw donkey with a whole bunch of Chinese government officials from my visit to China. <laughs>
0: Send that photo to us. We need that photo. Yeah, I'm that still jo- trying to get a copy. I still can't find it because it was just – in. The,
2: this was pre-cell phone days, right? So I couldn't even take a nice cell phone photo of it. I took it on an old camera. I can't even find it anymore. And Googling apparently Chinese local papers is not a good way to find them since obviously Google and China are not good friends. Yeah, so I can't yeah, even yeah. find it when I look into it. What, what, what did it taste like, though? What was the taste? It was, was slightly it? smoked. So it, uh-huh. to me, it tasted like a really light salami. But the the texture is more like sashimi. It's kind of uh, more okay. like a, a smooth like sashimi. So it was kind of a, a... I'm assuming it was a very specific part of the donkey that was... A, other very, sp-
0: than the other a very, a very specific part of the donkey. That's strange. I don't,
2: don't even want to know.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say. L- l- right.
2: oysters, you know? <laughs> 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 let me have you
1: Let me help you out right now. I'll pass.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, trust me when you're in front of <laughs> communist officials in China <laughs> ass is not an option anymore <laughs> and,
1: and, and now I'm just trying to imagine you know you just can't forget the part of the donkey conversation now you know I can't get <laughs> it out of my damn head now I gotta
2: research it because I never even looked it up I'm just like, like it's donkey I ate it we're done so,
1: yeah. <laughs> wow uh, it, okay we've been to The Philippines with you, Mexico with you, Turkey with you, China, the Sahara. Where else do we go, Dave? Uh, Japan. Japan. Man, you've been to 50 countries. Uh, There's got to be some places you want to go. You haven't been yet.
2: Oh, absolutely. Nepal, Tibet. That's like number one on my wife and I's list. We'd love to go and check that out. Um, Bhutan. Once we make a little bit more money, because we figured out how to get to Bhutan, you have to pay $500 a day per person just for the visa. Um, forget about hotels and food and everything while you're there, right? And there's a limited number of people. So that's like on our dream list. Also, we'd like to go and do a safari in Africa. So I think Kenya um, is also on our to-do list since I, we haven't actually had a chance to travel in Africa very much. And again, my dad grew up there. So I grew up with stories of Africa and how he would go to, you know, oh yeah, we would go to Victoria Falls every, you know, every summer and we would just hang out there. I have a picture of my dad running away from elephants and my grandfather instead of helping him. It's just they're snapping photos. I mean, you know, even though there's like this wild elephant chasing after my dad and my uncle. um, Now, I don't want that experience per se, but just the whole idea. He's like, yeah, we would camp and we'd just see wild animals, you know, around us and all the rest of it. We'd like to do that as well. So those are three things that are definitely on our to-do list. There's plenty more, but those are the three I can think of for now.
1: Okay. Um, I I also know you do a lot of uh, international speaking. Yes. And uh, I don't know what's happened to your speaking career, but mine is kind <laughs> of in the toilet right now. Uh, thanks to COVID-19. I'm on
2: podcasts just to just to make up for it. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, <laughs> uh, um, and even that doesn't pay the bills as well as public no, speaking no. does. I mean, we had the same conversation with General Honore last week. He was actually picking our brains trying to figure out how because Dave actually met General Honore in, in uh, was it the Bahamas at a conference. Yeah, the Bahamas, and he was complaining to us, you know, hey, I, you know, my income's gone. I said, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you're a retired general. I know how much money retired generals make, so you're okay. Uh, uh-huh. It's guys like it's guys like me who don't have that retirement check that I have to worry about. So, um, give us a little taste of what you talk about on, on when you go out and speak. I mean, obviously, this has been great, but you obviously talk about things other than just travel. Mm-hmm.
2: Generally, when I go and give give talks, it's about online business specifically. So, depending on the conference I go to and the level of The people in the conferences i'm pretty much tied into the digital nomad community so a lot of the conferences i go to are tied into that so i've spoken yeah in thailand bali united states europe um, across latin america since i speak spanish i can do it there as well uh i generally speak about if you're at the beginner levels i will give a talk on ways to pre-vet your ideas business ideas online for free um using combination of some free tools that are out there you can figure out how many people are looking for your business idea every month and run it through a simple formula of hey Is it worth my time? A lot of people don't bother with that. They just kind of launch into an idea because they think it's fun. And then they, even if it's successful, but there's all, you know, they only make $50 a month and you could have figured that out day one before you ever launched your business. So I talk about that. I talk about the free marketing methods that I use to bootstrap my businesses. So I've given talks on that. I use a system called content amplification. Um, I own a marketing agency that does that, but Generally, agencies are outside of the reach of bootstrappers. Um, so what I recommend at that point is just to – there we go. There we go. Working online, the, the whole Skype thing. And that. <laughs> Hello, marketer. Somebody was trying to sell me something there. Um, so that's another talk I give is that. And then the other one I give is about using discipline in your daily life. sounds boring. Um, but I tie it into my Japanese martial arts and sword fighting, kind of use it as an analogy. Um, and discipline, honestly, it reduces stress. I don't have to ask myself, what am I doing today? What am I doing today? Because you know what you're doing today and you know it's moving you forward. And if you can build that habit up, it actually, you know, compounding interest, it can make, you know, lead to a lot of success in life as long as you just stick to it long enough. Those are the three main talks. And then I can customize, I customize talks depending on what the audience wants at the time.
1: Yeah, I I can't overemphasize the discipline part of it and putting in the work. I, you know, we touched on instant gratification earlier and the expectations of it. But I have never run across a successful business person in my life who didn't put into work and suffered. I liken it to all the actors I know who slept in their cars for years before they mm-hmm. became stars or the, you know, things like that. And I don't under I mean, I guess I get where the instant gratification comes from because it's like like a sales tool. All these sales people just go, oh, hey, it's he's also good. human You're nature, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's the reason we like sugar. I'm like, whoo, this is great, right? Oh. I mean it's not good for us in the long term, Right, it tastes really good right now. So that's where it comes from. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, speaking of your love for sword fighting and martial arts a little bit, where, where'd that come from?
2: So I am, if you, do you guys, did you guys have that geeky Asian kid in your class with the glasses who got picked last for their PE teams? Uh, Dave Dave over there is laughing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was Michael. (laughs) Okay. Well, that was me. Yeah. (laughs) It was a six foot four inch black guy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: (laughs) The thing is I was, I skipped a grade when I was younger. Which I shouldn't have, but I was I was the shortest one in my class always growing up. I just thought I was short. It didn't occur to me that the difference between a nine-year-old and a ten-year-old is actually quite a bit. Now that I have a son, I'm like, there's a big difference in height between a nine-year-old and ten-year-old. But me being in the same grade as 10-year-olds, I thought I was just naturally short. I was really I'm Filipino. We tend to be pretty skinny. Um, you know, until I went to college and started working out, I weighed 150 pounds at six foot. I mean, I was a really, really skinny kid. So growing up, I would walk, love, fell in love with, you know, those Kung Fu, those really cheesy Kung Fu movies where the dubs don't quite quite match the mouths and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. I love those things, right? Because it was always about that underdog who learns a martial art and then, you know, becomes the hero at the end of it. So I grew up watching that. As a kid, I tried a whole bunch of different martial arts, but I was never really good at any of them. Um, it wasn't until in college I Took a year off of college to try to work in an internet startup in San Francisco, uh, almost two years. And while my roommate there was a bodybuilder. because nobody in San Francisco can afford their own place, right? So everybody kind of teams up and four or five people living in a house. And even as a computer programmer, I mean, you know, you can't afford your own place. My my roommates were like accountants at HP and all the rest of us. And And, and
1: by the way, for those listening, if you think he's kidding, go pull up outside Google or someplace in Silicon Valley and find out how many motorhomes are parked out. I was in Palo Alto.
2: (laughs) I mean, I was right there in downtown Silicon Valley. I mean, you know, so I had one room in in an apartment with multiple other people. One of them was a bodybuilder. There's like, hey, Ray, why don't you come and start working out with me? So I didn't. I mean, I'm like, yeah, you know, I was the skinny kid. And I'm like, let's be honest. I did it to pick up. I went like, I wanted to pick up more girls. So I'm like, let's go and work out. Right. So we started working out and he kind of introduced me to the whole, it's not just the gym. It's the diet as well. Kind of thing. Um, and it was a slow process like everything else. But I worked out for about four or five years. and went from about 150 to 185 in, in, in weight. I'm not huge, but suddenly I'm decent. And I was in pretty decent shape. That was when I found a martial art called Kendo. Right? I've been trying all these other ones. I'm like, let me give this Kendo thing a try. And suddenly, I think everything clicked. Right, I mean, I love martial arts, but now my body could finally react the way I was hoping it would react before when I was that skinny, uncoordinated guy. And I found I was pretty good at it. I won tournaments across the United States. They even sent me to try out for the U.S. national team. I did not make it, but you know, it was for my federation. I was one of the top people in my federation. There were seven federations in the U.S. And they sent me to try out for the U.S. national team, and I loved it. And I've been practicing it ever since. Um, Now, obviously, I do it for fun. I'm not in my 20s anymore. I'm not going to be competing at that level. But just for fun, it's fun to hit people over the head with a stick and hopefully not get hit too often over the stick. My wife says (laughs) it explains a lot about me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I must say this uh, as we're getting close to the end of our time with you. uh, We've had a lot of guests on our show. You look happy. I mean, just, yeah, sure looking, just <laughs> looking at you and just hearing you tell your stories and how you I'm, I'm a big read your face, body language type of person. You look happy. You look content. You look satisfied with your life. And that that's awesome. And, and I, I've got to think that the lifestyle that you've carved out for yourself, whether you, you, you know, I, I probably some of it was, you know, trial and error at the beginning. But you've actually gotten to a place now where you're comfortable. Man, it's awesome to see. And, I, and I'm glad you did join us.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. I mean, I'll agree. I am, I'm happy, but I'm not content. Kind of thing. There's there's a difference between the two, right? You know, you always want more, and not in a bad way. Uh, My wife and I want to start a charity at some point, right, in our lives. So that's why we're working now. Is luckily not to pay the rent and get to pay the bills anymore, but it's because we want to do. We want to contribute more to the world, and so we keep moving forward, right?
1: Yeah, that's an awesome. That's an awesome outlook, and and I'm glad you said that. I think more people need that attitude. Uh, I'm I don't want to cast aspersions on, on primarily the United States, but this me, 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 me stuff just drives me up a damn wall. And I, I, I get tired of it after a while, you know? And uh, so I'm glad to hear that not only do you want to keep going, but you actually want to give something to somebody else and, cool. and get their lives better. Absolutely. And, Ray,
0: and, 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 and I'll tell you what, Ray, since, I, um, since Michael calls me cheapo, I always love a good deal. Oh, I, I, I have to answer you about the time <laughs> when your, your wife accidentally rented a luxury train through the Andes for 95% uh, off the regular price. 97, 95. I think, when I did the math last time. I'm like, it's a little, a
2: little 97% oh, off the
0: math. Is, is she <laughs> always
2: good at negotiation? Oh, no. I'm actually the negotiator. She oh. hates negotiation. I was going to say, I, I need but, a new agent,
1: but okay. <laughs> uh, well,
2: but unf- unfortunately, negotiation had very little. negotiation had very little to do. With that one. Now, Dave, I'll say I'm you. I'm cheap as well. In Spanish, the word is codo. It means it's elbow. I don't know what it means, but everybody yeah. calls me that, right? I am super cheap. I hate spending money. I don't come from a family with a lot of money. You know, we were always watching every penny, every dime when I was growing up. And I've kind of, you, even when you make more, it's hard to lose that mindset, right? We're like, eh, that's quite a bit. And then somebody tells you, it's like, you make more than that in an hour. Like, no, I still don't want to spend that. And I'm like, that's still way more than I want to make, right? So the story behind, the renting of the luxury train. Um, so this is actually ties into the Incan Trail story we were doing before. So we did the Incan Trail, we were stinky, we were sweaty, you know, we had just had a shower, we're like, let's do something nice afterwards, right? Just to rest and relax after having done that grueling experience. So we went around, we looked for stuff. And apparently the Orient Express has multiple trains around the world. The most famous ones kind of in Europe, kind of going all the way to Asia. But they also have this a train in Peru. And it goes from Cusco to Lake Titicaca. It's about an 11-hour train ride through the Andes, through places in the Andes where only the train goes, right? So, you know, you see herds of alpacas running by the train. I mean, it's a magical experience. So I went online. I'm like, okay. That looks kind of nice. Let's give it out. You know, it has a Michelin star chef on it that gives us our food. They'll have entertainment. We'll go and check it out. It's about 20, they say about 30 people maximum on the train. So go on the website, start making a reservation. And then the website does a kind of weird glitchy thing. And I just hit refresh. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, and I pick the date we want to go on. I hit save. I pay for the tickets. They're about $1,000 per person for the tickets. Um, you know, a little ex- little expensive, but I'm like, okay, this is kind of the, the only expensive thing we're going to do on this trip. So we buy them. So we show up the morning of the train ride. And it's like, it's the company's British. So you, you know, when you show up there, they don't put you on the train, right? They take you to this British waiting room where like, would you like your coffee and crumpets? I'm like, I don't know what a crumpet is, but I'll take the coffee, right? Um, so you know, they brought us coffees, cookies, we're sitting there waiting, and they have those old Victorian chairs and those Scotty paintings on the wall from, you know, that look like the British royalty. So we got there 30 minutes early, like a good American, right? You show up 30 minutes early, sitting there waiting. Nobody else is here. That's strange. Fifteen minutes before the train run, at least. really strange, right? I mean, you know, I figured this would be mostly foreigners. Foreigners tend to show up early for this thing. At least most of them. So eight o'clock comes around, and this guy dressed up in kind of a maitre d's uniform kind of comes up and says, "Okay, would you like to on the train right now?" I'm like, sure, huh? Maybe they must have just taken everybody else straight onto the train, right? I mean, for some reason we got here so early. They put us in the waiting room. Walk on the train. They put you in the food cart, which is where you are. I look around and I'm like, there's nobody else here. And I look at them and I'm like, is, you know, they, we speak Spanish. So I asked them like, where is everybody else? And they're like, look, sir, somehow you were able to make a reservation on a day. This train was not supposed to run, uh-huh. but instead of canceling it, we are honoring your reservation. And this whole train is for you and your wife for the rest of the day. And we've got to go look at no extra charge. And they're like, no, no extra charge. This is a private train ride for you and your wife through the end uh, today. Um, we all are, we're all here. There's like 40 staff on this train and we're all here to serve your needs for the day. So my wife and I ended up having that entire train to ourselves for the entire day through the Andes. Now, while it was an amazing experience, it is kind of stressful because I, we asked them like, how much does this normally, do people do this? And they're like, yeah, Saudi princes and stuff. It's about 50, it's $50,000 to rent this train for the day. Um, and Saudi princes are generally the ones who do it, who do it. You guys, yeah. I'm like, yeah, we're not, a, we're not Saudi princes. <laughs> I'm like, no, not even close. Right.
1: So the prince part at least the king. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, at
2: least royalty of some kind, right? So we're, we're sitting there and we're like, okay, this is kind of cool. But then we suddenly realize this is kind of stressful because we're sitting there in the food cart. They're serving us food and there are six waiters and it's only us. And they're all sitting there staring at our table, waiting for us to do something or ask for something. I'm like, we're good. We don't need anything. At one point I dropped the fork and like they dove across the, the, the <laughs> cabin trying to pick it up because they had nothing better to do. That was live music. The first band was good, but the second band was awful. But we're the only people on the train. I couldn't get up and walk away. If there were other people, we would have just gone up and, you know, went to another cabin. Nope, we had to sit and watch the entire set. We had to buy all their CDs because we're the only ones on the train that are trying to sell their CDs. So, it was actually parts of it were actually exhausting. The rest of it was amazing. You know, the chef came out and talked to us. He was from France. The food was amazing. And you know we just kind of lounged wherever we felt like it on the train. It Was like eh, we, you know, if we fought, <laughs> But you stay in that cabin, I'll stay. In, I'll stay in this train cabin. You stay in that one. And we, we'll, you know, we wouldn't see each other. So that's we spent twelve hours on a luxury train. Oh, there was one other incident. There's a stop on the train where they stop, and the local indigenous in the mountains put up a whole market for this train because they say you know it's a train full of rich people. Yeah, yes. so they do that. And they're all waiting for everybody to come out the train. There's a big line, and me and my wife come out. there <laughs> like backpackers, and they kind of they look at us. They look back onto the cabin. It's like, where are the rest of them? Like, just us. <laughs> we didn't buy anything. We didn't buy anything in that market. They set hey, up just yeah. for us. I felt so bad. I'm like, oh, this is yeah. awful. Yeah. <laughs> Here
1: come a couple of peasants who are worse off than us. <laughs> exactly.
2: No, I mean, we we had our Incan Trail clothes on. I mean, I think sweat stains in our armpits
1: and all the rest of it. Was really <laughs> oh, was <bad. that's> <laughs> <bad. laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this is cool man man, it's been a lot of fun having you um tell us what you're working on as we get you out of here tell us what you're working on uh where people find out more about you uh, and what's next for you
2: sure so my main business is still L I V E L I N G U A l-i-v-e-l-i-n-g-u-a.com but i have a team that runs that so i'm my day-to-day involvement i spend about 45 minutes to an hour a day on that business i'm launching two new businesses in january 2021 um the first one it's on purpose, the second one's by accident. Uh, so the first business, the one I'm launching by accident is called howmuchtoiletpaper.com.
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got, I
0: got a
2: couple horror. I got a couple calculator. horror stories for that. <laughs> exactly. All of us do, but it went viral during co- the when COVID first came out in March. And this kid in the UK built it's just a calculator to figure out how much, you know, how much toilet paper you need to survive COVID. Um, and then I knew the kid, so I ended up buying it off of him, but now it. It's, we're having a second wave. Like in the last week, we've had 150,000 visits on that website, right? So I'm throwing an e-commerce store on there and we're selling Japanese smart toilets because I think they're awesome. And so I'm gonna have an e-commerce store, the number one e-commerce store for Japanese smart toilets, in the hopefully in the United States. It's com. But the main product that I'm really working on is something called podcasthawk.com, H-A-W-K, the animal. And you guys asked how I found you. That's it. So I am writing a... So the story is I wanted to get on podcasts. Now, I don't know if you, Michael or Dave, you've ever tried to get on other people's podcasts before. It's a tedious process. You can't really search iTunes, right? There's no real good way to search iTunes. You can go to Google and you find podcasts and half of them aren't even making episodes anymore or their emails don't work and all the rest of it, right? So getting on a significant amount of podcasts is hard. So me being a computer programmer, I was like, look, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? Because I asked one of my teams to do it. They spent a whole week and they got me like 30 emails to reach out to them. Like, that's not scalable, right? I mean, I can't just have a right. full-time to right. remember doing yep. this. So on the weekend, I'm like, let me see if I can get every podcast from iTunes in a database. I spent the weekend, huh, I can. Let me see if I can get the emails of every single podcast in iTunes in my database. Spend the next mm. weekend, huh, I can. So Podcast Talk right now is a search engine where let's say you guys want to appear on another travel podcast. You would go in there and say, give me any podcast in the travel category that has the word Morocco in it. In any of their episodes, because I have every episode, every review, and give me, you know, get me a list. So it gives you a whole list of all the podcasts that meet your criteria. And they've made an episode in the last 30 days. So you know they're still active, right? right. That works good. Let me save it. I want to reach out to these people. So you, you set up an email campaign where you have like two or three emails in there. We auto populate some stuff. You hit save and we reach out to 25, 50, or 100 podcasts every single day in order to see pitch these podcasts to see if you want to come on as guests. I ran a test run. That's how I find you guys. Thirty-three percent response rate. hundred emails sent out. I got on thirty-three podcasts. It backfired. I thought I was going to get on three. You know, I'm like one to three. That will take me to Christmas. <laughs> thirty-three podcasts is what I got on from one wow. email blast. Podcast talk will do that all for you for about 100 hundred to two hundred dollars a month, depending on the level you pay for. But considering a booking agent, I mean, you know, I, I reached out to podcast agents. They charge thousands of dollars to get you like on five podcasts. Yeah, I'm like no, I'm not Yeah. They're a joke. Man.
1: Yeah, it's David a joke. I've tried it's fun. A, yeah david, I've tried some. We know the jokes that is <laughs> that's it
2: It's ridiculous. so a hundred dollars a month it'll if if we'll send out like three four hundred emails, I might have to take that number down based on my test because theoretically I might you know people might be getting on like fifty podcasts a month for like the lowest level. people mm-hmm. might want a smaller, slower one for that because I was thinking a hundred to get you on like one to three podcasts if it gets you on thirty that's. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, thirty. Awesome. Yeah, thirty is a different animal. I guess there's like a a, a a return on investment or a cost benefit ratio to it. You know, like you know, one of the things we always try to do, obviously, is get some of our guests to share our podcast so we can grow our audience as well. Mm-hmm. And if you're getting on one and you're paying three thousand dollars a month to get on one, that's not worth it.
2: <laughs> if it's not giving you three thousand dollars, you know, if it's not Tim Ferriss or Joe, Ro- you know, Joe Rogan, yeah, yeah that's probably it's not worth paying three
1: grand. And, and Joe ain't talking to us anyway with that. I know. I know. Eighty million dollar like, deal he just got. <laughs>
2: he's he's in our database, so I have his contact information. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily recommend him be the first person to reach out to to get on the podcast. So.
1: Nah, nah, nah. Joe wouldn't remember me, but I remember when he was getting his start in LA and uh, yeah, um, but he, he wouldn't Oh, so you've me. actually met him. Yeah. Met, so. I've met him once, but he has no recollection of me and he has no need to, so I'm fine with that. Exactly,
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> well, my, hey, my friend, I appreciate you. Uh, man, you've just... Uh, uh, you've filled our coffers with uh, not only some uh, entertainment but you've also filled our coffers with some good valuable information i mean you know there was an idea that dave and i had that uh, i would have loved to have had a programmer around like you just to bounce the idea off of we may yeah. still come we may still come back at you later on because, i was about to say
2: you got my email said that out talking online business is my hobby i mean this is just fun for me so i'd be happy to chat with you guys
1: yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, i'll give you a hint it's it's called redoing the way travel is being booked uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, .com. It, it, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it sucks the way you have to go through and book travel nowadays. It's too complicated. It's too stupid. Uh, part of the travel industry uh, is living in the dinosaur ages because they were one of the first adopters of the online space, and they haven't upgraded their systems to reflect today. So it's been a pet peeve of mine, but we'll have that conversation off right <laughs> Um Anyway, my friend, hey, I appreciate you. Thanks uh, for doing this. Um, and I'm assuming the best place to catch you, to visit you is on your website at livelingua.com.
2: That's right. That's right. You can either con- do the contact us form there. I actually tell people at the time of this recording, podcasthawk.com might be better. Since I bootstrap, I answer all the emails there. LiveLingua, I actually have a customer support staff, so it'll go through them. Podcast talk, if you get me the first six months, Go to the contact us form, support, that's me. So, you know, when you email support, it goes
1: straight (laughs) into my inbox. Cool, cool, cool. Appreciate you, my friend. Hey, thanks for doing this. And and I'm looking forward to not only more adventures from you, but possibly getting you back on for some other, especially after you launched the podcast Hawk in January. We can get you back on and have a little conversation about that as well. So, man, appreciate you. Thanks so much for doing this. And if you like our show and want to learn more, please join our mailing list. Join us next Monday for another episode of TripCast 360. And on behalf of my friend Dave, uh, Ray, thanks for joining us. And uh, this is Michael saying so long and thanks for listening.